Back in 1977, uh, a long time ago, in a place far, far away, uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, I, uh, I was a, a Baptist student who did the unthinkable and became a Presbyterian, and uh, I thought I'd get that in right from the start. And um, a friend of mine, he wasn't actually at the seminary, but he was a dear friend of mine. We were of similar age. He worked for um, the military, he was flying back and forth to D.C. a lot. And he too made the journey from being a Baptist to a Presbyterian. He had just purchased uh, the 66 volumes of Spurgeon's um, Park Street and Met Tabernacle um, Pilgrim Publications, uh, Spurgeon's Sermons. And he called me one night, it was late, it was about 10 o'clock, and, and he called me and he said, look, now that I've become a Presbyterian, I really don't think I have any place for Spurgeon in my library. And I said, I'll be there in five minutes. Uh, and I, I got in my car, uh, it was a Volkswagen Beetle uh, with the engine in the, in the back, uh, and uh, I, I packed those books into my car as quickly as I could. Uh, they influenced me a lot. In my first uh, five to ten years of ministry, I, I rarely preached a sermon where I didn't, uh, at the close of my preparation, I would look at what Spurgeon had to say on the text. And sometimes Spurgeon can be ornate and flowery, and, and, but there was one, one section, there would be one paragraph that I had completely missed, and it, it just gave a kind of fire uh, to my, my sermons, at least I, I, I thought they did. The major influence on my preaching, and I think I probably preached five to 6,000 sermons uh, over the last 43 um, years of, of ministry. Um, the, the main influence for me was Spurgeon, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, his sermons on Romans were being published as I was a college and seminary student in the 1970s. And every uh, Christmas, my, my wife-to-be, my girlfriend, my, my, um, my, my bride eventually uh, would buy me uh, the, the Dr. Lloyd-Jones volume on Romans as a Christmas present. And what that did was... I failed to understand at the time that uh, those Romans series were given uh, in the uh, 60s uh, and late 50s and, and early 60s um, on a Friday night. They weren't Sunday sermons. They were given to a very select audience, mostly uh, preachers who traveled uh, from far and wide uh, in England and Wales to uh, Westminster Chapel to hear him deliver uh, uh, lectures. Uh, that were based on one or two verses, just as Spurgeon sermons typically are one or two verses. And that became, that became how I preached in the first 10 verses. I have changed enormously since then uh, and take much larger uh, pericopes uh, of Scripture. But what I want to do in the time that we have uh, this morning is a third influence on, on my understanding of preaching is the Westminster Directory uh, for Public Worship. This met in 1643 to 1645. It produced 
uh, the Westminster Confession, the shorter and larger catechisms, but it also produced uh, what's called the Directory for the Public Worship of God. And it's, it concerns many things, but in the very opening section, there's a four-page, 2,500-word summary uh, of what preaching is. And I know of no uh, better summary in all of literature uh, in, in the compass of two and a half thousand words to summarize what uh, preaching is. And uh, the, this summary, of course, was written by the Westminster Divines. They were Puritans. Um, they were preachers. All of them were preachers, and they were concerned about, uh, about preaching. And uh, they begin uh, with a section on uh, the qualifications for biblical preaching, the qualifications uh, for biblical preaching, addressing what is essential to a call for ministry. And there are many words in the New Testament that depict what a preacher is. A preacher is a herald, a carex. A preacher is a, a, a sower, a spiron. A, a preacher is an ambassador, presbus. A preacher is, um, is a steward, oikonomos uh, uh, in Greek. A, a preacher is a shepherd, poimen. Uh, but the word that the Westminster divines decided to choose from that plethora uh, of New Testament words for what a preacher is, is the word uh, orthotomeo, a, a workman. It takes it from 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a workman that has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing or rightly handling the word of truth. And then uh, in the previous verse, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And I think they were thinking of um, a, a dry form of intellectualism uh, that is of interest perhaps to scholars, but of uh, very little profit to the average person uh, in the pew. Uh, work at building up in the faith uh, the people of God. Uh, there's a famous Scottish uh, Presbyterian preacher of the 19th century. Uh, he was the principal of the Free Church College, uh, principal uh, Robert Rainey. Uh, Mr. So-and-so, he said, has the fatal gift of fluency. The fatal gift of fluency. But by which he meant that a preacher can be so gifted in speaking that he can stand up and talk for 30, 40 minutes uh, from the top of his head but that'll make him lazy. It'll make him, it'll make him take shortcuts. And what the Westminster divines, uh, this is of course uh, on the other side of the Reformation with its enormous stress on scripture and the infallibility of scripture and the inerrancy of scripture and the, the, the sola scriptura uh, uh, doctrine uh, that, that uh, uh, the preacher must first and foremost be a workman, a workman. Working hard. In my first uh, few years, 10 years, 15 years of ministry uh, in Belfast in Northern Ireland, uh, I was the solo preacher. Uh, I had no secretary. Uh, I, I was everything. I was the youth guy. I was the college guy. I was the young prose guy. Uh, I was the senior ministry guy because there was only one guy, uh, and that was me. 
uh, and I had three preaching slots, uh, morning and evening. I've, I've been in, uh, throughout my ministry, I've always been in a church where there was a morning and evening service. So uh, the issue of, of the Sabbath has, has, has not been an issue for me. Uh, by default, I've always been in a church where there was a morning and evening service. Uh, and then there was a midweek service, and, and that too had a sermon in it. So I had three sermons uh, to, to prepare a, a week. And my general rule of thumb was to spend my mornings in the study. And then after lunch, I would do my pastoral work. And in the first 15 years of my ministry, I was in a context where uh, the congregation uh, expected the minister to call uh, at home uh, with every member, uh, the shut-ins at least once a month, sometimes in some cases once a week, uh, but at least twice a year for all of the members of the church. Uh, that's a different uh, society, I think, to modern uh, 2022 uh, America, whether it's in Kansas City or in Columbia, uh, where I am now. But that was my discipline. I spent half my time in the study and half my time um, visiting uh, and, and going to hospitals and, and, and so on. A workman. Uh, that needs not be ashamed. Then the, the, the directory adds another thing, um, gifted to some degree. The preacher must have certain uh, spirit-given, endowed gifts, willing to work and gifted to preach. It talks about ancillary uh, knowledge of original languages, uh, the Puritans, uh, were insistent on uh, the need for study of uh, Hebrew and Greek and, of course, Latin, uh, because in 1645, many of the textbooks, many of the theological textbooks were in Latin and therefore required uh, a knowledge of Latin, but also of theology. Um, if you don't get excited about theology, the ministry is probably not for you. You can get overexcited about theology and, and miss the practical consequences of theology. But every preacher, every teacher must be interested in the doctrines that God has laid down by the Holy Spirit in his word. Gifted in the handling of Holy Scripture. Your textbook is the Bible. And you must know your Bible. If I could go back 50 years and, and, and redo and tweak certain things, I'd want to know my Bible better. What made Spurgeon such a great preacher? What made Martin Lloyd-Jones such a great preacher? Perhaps the best preacher of the 20th century. And Spurgeon, perhaps the best preacher of the 19th century. It was their knowledge of Scripture. It was like... Bunyan said that if you pricked Bunyan, his blood would come out bibline. Bible texts would sort of pour out uh, of, of his veins. These are precious years. I loved seminary. I, I, every aspect of seminary. There were courses that were kind of blah, but, but there were courses uh, that, that absolutely thrilled me. And 50 years, almost 50 years later, I can still remember them. I can still see myself sitting in the classroom, listening to my professor expound truths 
introduce me to theologians, introduce me to concepts, being surrounded by like-minded um, students. It was a thrilling experience and one that I wish I could repeat again and again and again, but this is a once-in-a-lifetime uh, moment for you. And what thrills me as a man who's close to 70 is when I teach at seminary these days, it's filled with people your age, in your 20s, some in their early 30s, and it warms my heart for the future of the church. The church is in good hands. God has heard the prayers of my generation that another generation of preachers and teachers have arisen. And then another aspect that the divine said was a necessary uh, gifting to some degree. Um, make sure that the text speaks to you first. Make sure when you're preparing an address, a homily, a sermon, a talk, make sure that it addresses you first. Let it penetrate into your heart. Let it penetrate into your soul. Robert Murray McShane was a great preacher in the 19th century. He died when he was 28. He went into ministry at about 21. He spent a year in Palestine. So he was only in ministry six years. And it's amazing that 130, 140 years later, we still talk about him. He's still up there among the great preachers of the past. A young man who spent six years in ministry. And he once said that the greatest need of my people is my own personal holiness. The greatest need of my people is my own personal holiness. Let the text, let scripture shape and, and mold you so that when you speak, they, they see the shadow that is cast on the wall behind you. And it's the shadow that is in the shape of the Lord Jesus when you deliver difficult truths and when you have to reprove and rebuke, as sometimes you do, let them see that it comes from a heart that loves the Lord Jesus and it comes from a heart that loves people. Well, then this directory goes on to speak of the nature of biblical preaching. And the divines didn't lay down strict rules for expository preaching. Uh, some of them were textual, like uh, Spurgeon. They would just choose a random text. I, I did that for a while, and occasionally we'll do that in the summer when the congregation, um, half of them are at the beach and half of them are in the mountains, and, and, and there's no continuity, so doing a, a series is difficult. So I do a series that's based on different texts in, in, in the summer. The problem with textual preaching is Saturday night fever. You've gone through eight texts in the course of the week and none of them have spoken to you. And now it's eight o'clock on a Saturday evening and you're having second thoughts and you need to find yet another text that warms and glows your heart. That's part of the problem of textual preaching. There are occasions when you need to do thematic preaching, doctrinal preaching. Maybe the setting is a different place. Maybe it's not a Sunday. Maybe it's a it's a midweek to do that. 
But my consistent method of preaching over the last 35, 40 years has been Lectio Continua, preaching, preaching through books, taking sometimes shorter passages, sometimes longer passages, but beginning at chapter 1 and verse 1 and working my way through until I reach the final verse of the last chapter of that book. I preached on almost every book of the Bible. I, I will have to find Jeremiah in heaven and, and sidle up to him quietly and say, Jeremiah, that prophecy of yours, first of all, it was long. <laughs> and I'm not sure I could hold my congregation for six years look, looking through your, your book. And I, I, have to, I have to confess that I only got as far as chapter 14, and I quit. I was a young preacher, and all I saw before me for the next six to nine months was judgment, <laughs> and more judgment, and more judgment. So I, I gave up, and I will have to apologize to Jeremiah, and maybe if God spares me, I may be able to go back to Jeremiah before I'm taken home to glory. There was a variety of preaching among the Puritans, and as I said, in the 1970s, the Banner of Truth uh, publications uh, published uh, the Friday night lectures of Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones from Westminster uh, in, in London. And these were his Friday night lectures on the epistle of Paul to the Romans, and he got as far as Romans 14, and I think verse 23, uh, and then he was... He declined in health and, and, and never, uh, never finished. They had a huge impact on me. And I thought at first that sermons, if they were going to be weighty, had to go down really deep into the text. And I think that's probably one of the issues uh, of having spent time at seminary and having learnt original languages and having uh, spent many a... a, a, a sleepless night, learning the intricacies of Greek and Hebrew grammar, that you don't want to waste this education and you want your people to know it too, even though it may not always be the best way of preaching. I think that you need to be sensitive to your congregation or to your audience. I've had the privilege throughout my entire ministry of preaching to a congregation that has been used to reformed expository preaching forever. I understand that's not everybody's context. And you may go into a congregation that is entirely different from mine. My congregation expects biblical preaching. My congregation ex expects depth. My congregation has learned for a hundred years to listen to a certain kind of sermon, but that's not that's not always the case, and you need, you need to expound the text, but you also need to expound the congregation. Are they a young congregation? Is it a church plant composed of young Christians who hardly know the Bible, who know bits and pieces of the New Testament, but the Old Testament is largely unfamiliar to them? And, and your method of teaching and preaching has to be adjusted then accordingly. You also need to be sensitive to your own personal gifts. 
Not every preacher can preach on one verse and hold the attention of a congregation for 45 or 50 minutes. And you must recognize that. Learn to see and, and, and value what your particular gift set is and preach accordingly. Yes, I think that we can, we can grow as preachers. We can modify ourselves as preachers. We can learn from other preachers for sure. They added some principles. One was balance. It's one of the great pluses of having a morning and evening service and a midweek. If all you have is Sunday morning and your midweek is something else, but it's not a sermon, you've only got one chance. You've only got one spot. And if you choose to preach on Romans or if you choose to preach on 1 Corinthians and you're going to be there for a couple of years it it may be an unhealthy diet and one of the great advantages of having a morning and evening service and a midweek is that you can do the Old Testament in one and the New Testament in the other you can do different genres you can preach on poetry or proverbs or apocalyptic or, or a gospel and, and one of my, one of my um, principles over the years has been that the congregation needs to be in a gospel on a regular basis. But if you've only got a one time to preach in the week, that, that's not possible. But if, you, if you've got three occasions in the course of the week, you can make one of them, perhaps with, with a gap of a year or two, but you can make one of them an exposition of the gospel. Because our congregation needs needs to hear Christ. And yes, you can hear Christ in all the scriptures, but they need to see him. And they need to hear his words. They need to see his character. They need to hear his emphases. You need to ask yourself, what are the needs of the congregation? I think as a young preacher, a commentary would come in, and I've always been interested in books and and collected books in a way that... Young seminary students today do not, largely, I think, because of the internet. And it troubles me a little because my library is very precious to me. But I remember as a young preacher, a commentary, for example, a commentary on First Corinthians would come in. And I would sit down and begin to read it. And I would say, oh, I would get so excited about First Corinthians. And I would say, I need to preach a series of sermons on First Corinthians. But maybe, maybe that's not what the congregation needs. Maybe their needs are different. Maybe they're not as dysfunctional as the Corinthian church was. And actually preaching through Corinthians may so troubled rather than, 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 than maturity. It's often said, and I think it is partly true, that the way your congregation will learn to read the Bible for themselves is the way they hear you expound it in the pulpit. I think if you've been in the pulpit for a number of years and you've, you've made a relationship, maybe not in the first couple of years, but if you've been in a congregation for 10 or 15 years and they know you, 
They know the way that you think. They, they know the sort of questions that you're going to raise. You, they know the sort of answers that you're going to give. So the way you preach the Bible, the way you handle the Bible, the sense of authority, the sense of dignity, the emphases that you put will be the way they too will read the Bible for themselves. That puts a burden on you to plow, to rightly divide the word of truth, as Paul says, or in one translation, uh, to, to, um, to plow a straight furrow, as one interpretation of uh, 2 Timothy 2.15. They also caution about too many divisions. I once heard a dear friend of mine, I won't name him, because you'll know him, but I once heard a friend of mine at the beginning of the sermon, say he had 19 points. I think he got through about eight of them. Um, do not burden the people with too many divisions, but there must be order. There must be some kind of structure. There must be a sense of logic that one thing flows into another. And the text itself may not always have that logic depending on the genre of the text, especially, for example, if you're preaching through the Psalms and you preach through them verse, verse by verse consecutively, you'll, you'll miss because the central thing in many of the Psalms is right in the middle, not at the end. And so you need to, you need to think about how, it's, it's one of the things that I think about a lot. Once I have a structure, when you, when you have that hammer and you, you, you tap the passage and it, it just falls into three or four segments. That's a beautiful day. That's going to be a good day. The rest of the sermon, I, I don't need to be at my desk for. Many a time, I've thought about the conclusion. How am I going to conclude this sermon? And I've done it when I'm walking my, my two dogs. I love dogs. I believe dogs will be in heaven. You, you can... <laughs> I believe in the new creation that God will restore all of his creation, including my dogs. And when I walk them, my head is in another place, and I'm thinking, how do I want to end this sermon? Because the ending of a sermon is very important. What's the last thing you want people to go away with? What, what kind of mood? What kind of emphasis? What kind of truth? I was once asked at RTS, why did I, and, and he included Sinclair Ferguson, who's been my close friend for 40 years, why did I and Sinclair Ferguson preach the way we do? And I was taken aback, and I thought, I'm not sure that I preach any differently from anybody else. And what he was getting at was what the Directory of Public Worship actually says, to preach the doctrines that are in the text. Too many, and I don't, I don't want to offend anyone, least of all you good people at Midwestern, but too many sermons sound like a commentary. Sometimes I, I listen to a sermon and I think, dude, just give me the commentary. I can read that for myself. But what are the truths here? What are the doctrines? The doctrines that are found in the text Another thing 
that the directory hints at and, and has been a huge influence for me. Don't be the slave of the one, the preacher who says three minutes before the sermon ends, and now a word of application. What? What does the rest of the sermon mean? Truth is application. It's application to the mind. The reason for bad behavior is because of bad thinking and bad theology. So theology itself is application. It's application to the mind. Make sure within the first five or six minutes that they know what it is that this text is asking of them. And that way I think you capture their attention. What is this passage principally saying? Yes, the Westminster Divines thought that that was a good question to ask what Jay Adams, when I was at seminary, what Jay Adams talked about as the telos. Others have talked about the main point. But what is the main point? What is the, the one thing? Can you summarize your sermon in, in one sentence? And if you can't, I think you've got work to do. Different genres need to be handled differently. I think I made the error on more than one occasion as a young preacher of preaching the Psalms as though the Apostle Paul had written them. Note the difference in preaching in Jesus' preaching. Think about how he preached the Sermon on the Mount and then compare how he preached or taught in the upper room. In John 14, 15, 16, and, and then the high priestly prayer in John 17. So there's variety. Listen to other preachers and learn from them. Learn to leave the shavings on the floor, on the workroom floor. I get really ticked off by young preachers <laughs> who tell me with absolute authority as though they were the Apostle Paul that this translation in the ESV is wrong and it needs to be retranslated. And you've done one year of Greek. <laughs> and there are scholars who spent 50, 60 years studying Greek. And they've drawn a different conclusion. So, so be modest. One of the things that you do when you constantly retranslate, especially if you've got a pew Bible, as, as we have. Our pew Bible is the ESV. If you're constantly retranslating it, you're undermining a fundamental Reformation principle. A principle of perspicuity that says the ordinary Christian through the due use of ordinary means may come to a right understanding of Scripture, but they can't, if they can't trust their Bible, if they need an expert in the, in the, in the pulpit to constantly tell them what the right translation is. So be careful about that. Well, there's a lot more. I'm going to come back to this again um, tomorrow and address some more things that the Westminster Divines had to say about preaching. 
I love being a preacher. It's who I am. It's what I am. I was saved as an 18-year-old, first year in university, raised in a secular home. I'd never read the Bible, didn't possess a copy of it. But I knew as soon as I fell on my knees on December the 28th in 1971, at about 11 o'clock at night, I knew, within days, I knew God was calling me to be a preacher. It was an internal thing that needed to be verified externally by wise elders and preachers and friends. But it defines who I am and what I am. I'm a seminary professor, but that's secondary to being a preacher. I'm a preacher first. I tell my students all the time, I'm not interested in theology that I can't preach. So books on prolegomena go completely over my head. I know I have to read them and study them. But my main interest is preaching. It's a great calling. It's an absolutely fabulous calling. Of course, there are problems. Of course, there are difficult people. The church is made up of, according to the King James Version, peculiar people. <laughs> and there's a few in every congregation. But the rewards far outweigh the pains. And there's nothing like on a Sunday evening going home sitting in your favorite chair, having some supper with your wife, you're absolutely spent and exhausted. And there's no feeling like it, that you've been an ambassador for Christ. You've been a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. May God bless you. May God give you long and fruitful ministries here or abroad. May you be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. It's the highest calling. Yes, I believe that there's a sense of calling for every vocation. I'm, I'm well aware of Luther's doctrine of vocation. But to be called to be an ambassador for Christ in the kingdom of God, what a privilege for a sinner that is. Father, we thank you. Thank you for this high and noble calling. And I do sincerely pray for these young men and women as they find their fulfillment of vocation in serving you to the highest possible standards that they may be spent and be spent in the furtherance and advancement of the kingdom of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.